You're listening to the Detroit is Different podcast network. That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. What? That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. Welcome to the Riverwise Podcast. On this podcast, we dive deep into the movements, the actions that are happening in and around the city of Detroit, bringing you the voices, highlighting the stories and actions of the activists, communities, teachers working in this city. My name is Amas Mohammed, and as always, I am joined by my co-host and managing editor of the Riverwise magazine, Mr. Eric Campbell. Thank you, Omas, and thank you, everyone who's listening. Welcome to the Riverwise podcast. We're really excited about this, this particular episode. I want to acknowledge, before we get started, uh, the moment that we're in, we're all busy adapting in different ways um, through the pandemic, and we want to send our condolences out to folks who are struggling in and around the pandemic, and just acknowledge that this moment deserves stories like these. In fact, we were having a conversation the other day, I think, uh, we were talking, Omas, about you know what kind of stories we should be looking towards. Mm-hmm. As crises keep piling on each other and, and, and things keep seemingly get you know crazier and crazier, um, it's stories like these, it's stories that hopefully presenting through Riverwise that are um, you know helping us through these times and helping us find uh, helping us find some grounding through these times. So yeah, it's 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 important to recognize that uh, all of this work has been happening, but in in this year we've had the unique happening that everyone is forced to rethink. Uh, the processes, the systems, the situations. And so although many people have been working and doing incredible work many years before this, now uh, more than ever, these things are being brought to the forefront and forcing people to re-engage with how they see and, and experience this, all, all of these things. Yeah, I, th- I think one way, one way I've been thinking about it is that, you know, as um, these crises have forced us to think more collectively. And I think that, you know, maybe it sets us up to, you know, make this sort of system change or look towards this, the kind of system change that we hope um, will uh, advance, you know, folks on the margins and folks under the margins and advance the whole society. So in that spirit, we've got a, a great conversation this evening. Um, I'm sorry, you, you might, it could be night or day listening to the podcast, I suppose. <laughs> um, we have with us Frank and Karen Hammer from the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition and attorney Tanya Meyer Phillips, Tanya Myers Phillips, I'm sorry, from the Sugar Loss Center. And we want to talk about, uh, we're going to get into a little bit uh, around the Amazon development and uh, the relationship with the city and the, uh, once again, the opportunities that hopefully we won't miss, but, but it seems like that are slipping by the opportunities for the community to get more involved in mm-hmm. developments like this. We've been hearing about this in the news quite a bit and the Hammers and the Smyers Phillips have been behind a, uh, a lawsuit that uh, brought the uh, brought the issues out a little bit more into the public, you know, let us take a look again at how how a development this large can go can go by can be approved without with so little approval from from the community surrounding it um, and the public. 
the city of Detroit, the people of Detroit, rather than the city. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to have this conversation when you brought it to my attention. It's, it's so important and so wild because it's something that has gone kind of out of my purview. And in, in this time of year, it's, you know, there's so much happening and so many things going on, going yeah. on. And stories like this are super vital because it really brings forth what happens to a community when our eyes are diverted, when things are out of the way, like how, you know, we can be taken advantage of or, or our, our input is denied because we are preoccupied with things beyond our control. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to hear about this and, and to explore it a little more. All right. Let's jump into it. I want to first introduce uh, attorney Tanya, Tanya Myers Phillips from the Sugar Law Center. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Mm -hmm. And Frank and Karen Hammer, thank you so much for joining us from the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition. Thank you. We're really pleased. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to start actually because uh, I have to divulge, you know, this isn't the first time that we've talked. Um, you know, Riverwise did a piece around two years ago now um, on the plan that the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition put together for the fairgrounds, for the, for the land that was, uh, that was being coveted by the city and others, that plan called the Meta Expo Plan. Um, I wonder if we could start today's conversation by, by maybe going back to that time when the uh, Development Coalition was really, was really pushing um, and organizing around the community, around the fairgrounds, and put this plan together and was um, lobbying the city to, to put it into action. Yes. Actually, there were, it was sort of a skeletal coming together of people right after the fair closed in 2009. And uh, off of that, various groupings and individuals who lived around the fairgrounds were trying to find ways to have the land get used and for the benefit of the people. During that time between 2009 and 2012, when Snyder, well, they moved the fairgrounds into the Michigan Land Bank, the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition was forming by going out and talking to people and getting their ideas. And those ideas culminated in uh, basically seven elements that the Meta Expo embraced, and which were seven elements that should be on any development on the fairgrounds, no matter who did it. And the actual drawings that existed at that time were the results of the vision of two landscape architects and an architect putting together all the things that everybody said they wanted on the fairgrounds land. So that's what the Meta Expo, it was like a vision to go forward with. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I remember uh, that stands out to me that certainly was the fact that the the development plan was was conceived, you know, along with the community and and had many almost all, I mean all the elements really spoke to the needs by the most impacted in that community. You know, that was a uh, result of the community, the folks who lived around the the state fairgrounds being involved in the planning. Is that right? Well, it was broader than that. It actually was began statewide with people who actually wanted to rescue the state fair. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that was 55,000 signatures. And then, uh, then it morphed into trying to get the metro park system to build a metro park there. 
and then there were uh, there was a final kind of um, group final meeting of all the state fair employees and volunteers and city council that wanted to uh, move forward. And what they did is come up with a bunch of ideas, and that's what what you call the plan resulted from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the visioning actually came from both the people who lived in the immediate vicinity of the fairgrounds as well as from other elements of the parts of the city and coming together and coming up with these seven elements that made up the Meta Expo plan. Meta Expo was Michigan Energy, Technology, and Agriculture Exposition. That's what embraced those seven elements. So, it, But it really did come from a really broad cross-section of uh, Detroiters and people living beyond the borders of Detroit. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, for example, the um, there was a uh, apartment building that was that was close to the uh, S- SFDC office that you um, you all referred to a couple of times as as folks that were, you know, were part of the plan as far as housing goes. And, and how res- I'm just thinking about how, res- how responsive that plan was in a way that, you know, we assume that this Amazon plan will not be, you know, it's responding directly to, you know, people different sectors, different people that are within the affected uh, area. Yeah, as you may remember, uh, residents of the State Fairgrounds Apartments were uh, very much solicited. Yes, views. we held a couple of meetings there mm-hmm. uh, to get their opinions. Uh, we had ongoing contact with some of the people who lived in the apartment complex, one of whom joined our steering committee. Yeah. And then... Uh, to this day, there is a resident who was recently covered in another article who spoke out about how she wanted, how the community needed input as to what went on in the fairgrounds. And, so that's an example. Mm-hmm. And then we also went to other neighborhoods as well. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right that one of the, the pressing needs of the uh, wonderful people that we got to know at the Safe Fair Apartments is the question of housing. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right that there was a pressing need for additional for housing and for people to, in the course of any development, to not be marginalized and be driven out of that neighborhood because of the development. Mm-hmm. And another thing was recreation and green space. Yeah, all of, all of the whole cross-section of, of things that, that were presented in the plan really uh, presented a, a kind of a 21st century look at, you know, how, you know, communities can thrive um, economically, politically, and, and socially as well, that the scope of the plan was, was, was amazing. So again, I, I just bring it up, and I, I just want to, you know, make sure that people um, have a sense of, you know, what a community-based, a community-driven plan can look like, you know, as opposed to what we're up against, what the alternative um, that we're up against with the, uh, with the city's pushing of the, um, of the Amazon plan. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I offer... A- our website for folks who want to investigate what you're talking about. Please do. I was, I was just going to ask if you guys are still meeting and, and um, yeah, whatever information you want to. The website is myfairgroundsfuture.org and MI is my for Michigan, mm-hmm. myfairgroundsfuture.org. Yes, and I just also want to chime in that the coalition is on Facebook as well. So you can look up State Fairgrounds Development Coalition on Facebook. Beautiful. Yeah, people people need to check that out because it's 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 really I mean, we've done quite a few stories that I think um have been 
need more amplification. This is definitely one. Were you going to jump in, Amas? Yeah, I was going to say just for uh, we've kind of dove in pretty quickly, and uh, for for a listener, someone who's who's kind of new to this story, is it possible to um, maybe explain a little bit about what the the vision was from the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition for the land and versus what is now being pushed forward as as the other one. So we kind of have an understanding of what the work is being done. And, and I don't want to assume that all of our listeners even know the scope of the amount of land that exists there mm-hmm. and how big it is and how, you know, how much potential exists. You know, I, I have very fond memories of growing up there, but just kind of talking about once that land was changed and what the vision is ultimately through the State Fairgrounds Coalition and what is now being pushed by the city um, in, in, instead of that. Is the Meta Expo plan still part of, part of your vision? It's part of that question, I think, as well. Yes. So if I may, uh, the, maybe the simplest way to try to familiarize the, your listeners with what, what the community had envisioned for the fairgrounds is to go through the seven elements very briefly. So they'll give you a scope of um, what the thrust of our efforts were. One, that the site had to be environmentally sustainable in regards to energy resource, uh, construction materials, etc. So for uh, reducing carbon emissions uh, in our neck of the woods, uh, transit-oriented design, we had conceived of a transit hub that would have combined the rail, bus coming up, Woodward, vehicles, cars, bikes, as into a regional transit hub, bringing the region together. The third item was we wanted new economy jobs, which would have been in a tech sector in regards to research into renewable energy and other environmental sustainable occupations. Yeah, and that also included energy efficiency jobs and retraining uh, people from jobs that were more carbon-based to jobs that were solar, wind, et cetera. And then there was, uh, we thought that we should have an expo center where you could have uh, all the exhibits that the people wanted to have. It could even have state occasional fairs of different kinds and they wanted historical preservation of all the structures and using them, reusing them in some other other fashion, but kind of creating a village where people could enjoy the whole ambiance. It, it was also promoting urban agriculture, both in terms of studying it and promoting it uh, and working with folks who are doing it throughout the city so that it would help erase food deserts in Detroit. So those are some of the parameters. Mm-hmm. The sustainability aspect is, you know, so vital. You know, in, the, in these times when you know we're looking, at, we're looking at vital climate change issues. You know, the city's good at selling development projects in terms of jobs, but you know, in our current system, and I, you know, jobs play a vital role, of course. But we want to be able to discuss the opportunities that we miss out on when we. When we only talk of jobs, or only talk of certain types of jobs, so you know the meta, the the, the plan that you guys have put together through the State Fairgrounds um, Development Coalition spoke to uh, spoke to that issue um, quite well. Are, are there plans still up on the website? I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the uh, article that we put together in the 2000 uh, fall 2018 issue 
and you know we were able to print some uh, a couple of amazing images. Are those images still available at the website? Yes, indeed. There's a whole section on the website about Meta Expo, and it goes through all the detailed, uh, fabulous drawings that these these landscape architects and architects worked on pro bono, and who consider themselves as part of the coalition. Indeed, yeah, the drawings are amazing. So, in the process of creating this this plan, I, I look forward greatly to looking at the, those renderings. What are the steps that have come about, and and again, kind of bringing it into what's happening now? Uh, I know I was reading some of the articles that were about you know get, coming up to the point of Amazon trying to buy the land and, and where we are now. What what were some of the successes that you saw in the Meta Expo, and then kind of where we're at with these hurdles that are now presenting themselves? Well. First of all, we didn't stop going out to get people's input on uh, Meta Expo and the concepts of the seven elements. We kept surveying. We worked with MSU to survey at home gatherings and some art fairs and some other public gatherings. And there's a, a, a report on that and worked with D4 doing development differently in um, Detroit. Uh, also getting gaining surveys through some of the communities, some of the surrounding communities. So uh, that was very positive. But then all of a sudden the state, well, not all of a sudden, it took a while, but the state decided to sell the land. And that helped turn the corner because Detroit bought most of the land. So I, w I want to try to get Miss um, Phillips involved in the conversation. And maybe I don't know if... If we've covered enough background, maybe we'll go back to the uh, Meta Expo plan as we as we move ahead. But I want to talk about you know um, the point at which the city decides uh, or starts going into uh, business with Amazon, the uh, real estate development companies that are involved in that deal, and then that deal was approved by the city council. And uh, not to go too quickly, but you folks put together a, a lawsuit um, establishing a restraining order. So I guess my question is, Tanya, what what about the deal? With Amazon said to you and and to the, the hammers that uh, you we need to take this to court. Well, there are a lot of problems about this deal, you know, and things that the citizens of Detroit and really the region should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Amazon effect in major metropolitan areas, you know there are a lot of things that you know should give one pause. First of all city marketed or really pushed this deal, you know, I'm almost reluctant to call it a deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I certainly don't think it's a deal for the people of Detroit. But in this um, transaction, the city's main selling point is the creation of approximately 1,200 jobs is the, the rationale that they had given for why they wanted to aggressively pursue this this proposal. But we know that there are no guarantee of jobs. You know, it's a clever play of marketing, but the purchase agreement does not contain any job guarantees at all. So the city of Detroit will transfer this land for a warehouse to be built. And the taxpayers and residents of Detroit are not even guaranteed jobs. There's just a provision in the agreement that they will collaborate with Detroit at work and they only have a responsibility to provide 1,200 jobs, again, not for Detroiters, mm -hmm. 
just being each other for only one year. And the language of the agreement itself is um, questionable as to how how in the world will you track 1,200 jobs? It doesn't talk about it being site-specific. Um, there's no agreement for mechanism in place to monitor it at all. So this is a pretty uh, bad deal for the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no environmental protections. There are, there are absolutely no environmental protections or standards um, built out into this agreement. And this is especially concerning because two things needed to happen in order for um, this to arrive at the place where it's at now. One, an amendment to our master plan had to occur. So this not only affects the uh, portion of land where Amazon, Amazon uh, warehouse is slated to come, I mean, this affects a very large portion. So this entire area, 142 acres and beyond, it's being changed from regional park to light industrial. So the site, um, the Amazon warehouse is, is projected to take up about 80 acres, mm -hmm. but the change will affect the entire area, all of the 142 acres and beyond. So Amazon is the start, but the mayor, the Duggan administration envisions this entire area being industrial with which has significant environmental impacts not positive impacts but negative impacts and there are no mitigative standards in this agreement at all now one thing we were able to achieve from our advocacy efforts which do which are continuing is um, a commitment by the detroit city council for the city of Detroit to do baseline air quality monitoring. So at least there will be, um, you know, an initial set of data to establish a baseline for what the air quality is. I mean, that is a start, but it's nowhere near sufficient to protect the health and safety of residents who live immediately in the shadows of that facility and beyond mm -hmm. because air pollution travels, right? And this will be one of Amazon's, if Amazon has its way, one of the largest warehouse facilities in the country. And we will experience diesel truck traffic 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So one of the main problems we had with this is the lack of environmental protections. You know, none. <laughs> and, and we know that because, I mean, I mean, obviously, Amazon's not, not a new company. We have plenty of pre precedents to um, which to yeah. build a case on um, when it comes to not only the environmental environmental aspects, but also the job aspects of, as well, because their employment history has been, you know, they've been. I mean, you can talk more about, you know, the, the, their stance on unions, but but I'm amazed to hear that they they were able to get a deal through without any without committing to any, you're saying not only just, you're saying that there's no number of Detroit jobs that are, that are, that exist in the agreement at all. No, no. not, not at all. Not mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's the provision only requires them to have 1200 jobs period for one year. That's it. But you know, the language is meaning, 
meaningless without an enforcement provision. So there's no provision in this agreement for monitoring. There's no way for any independent body to actually go in and, and tell whether there were 1,200 jobs, what is the retention rate? We know the retention rate from Amazon mm -hmm. is abysmal. And we presented this information to the Detroit City Council, you know, about the studies in different cities, including uh, looking at the Amazon effect in multiple cities in California, where on average, the warehouse associate, they don't make it past one year, you know. So these are not the type of jobs that will lift our community members out of poverty or provide a viable career mm -hmm. path. You know, it's a churn and burn anti-union operation. So we represented that information to them and, um, you know, they proceeded to vote for it anyway. And another problem with this deal, there's so many, but I'll just give you two, yeah. you know, two more and we could keep the conversation going. <laughs> I could keep going. Council, what is the city council voting for? I mean, there's, there's tax revenue, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, but I mean, you know, beyond, beyond a, a baseline of financial, you know, benefits for the city, you know, if it's, if it's not even any, any jobs, that was, that was the mayor's first line was it, you know, mm -hmm. they're putting the other 1200 jobs. So I'm sorry to mean to cut you off. Though. Oh no. Well, you, you brought up a good point. Um, tax revenue, maybe we'll put a question mark right. there. Another area that, you know, they would promote somewhat if asked, you know, this isn't in their top selling points. But they would say, you know, there are no um, tax abatements being provided. Uh, so this is a great deal for Detroit. Well, the purchase agreement only says that the purchaser will not request benefits from the seller. That does not speak to Amazon. That does not speak to any other joint venture or LLC. That does not speak to any other development that will come along in phase two or three of this project, that is a very, very large loophole. And it's common for developers to request um, brownfield credits. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost, you know, ABC in the playbook, right? <laughs> and again, Amazon has a tradition of, of getting tax incentives. They already have over $20 million in tax incentives from the state of Michigan for their other warehouses. This is part of what they do. Mm -hmm. It's their business mm -hmm. model. And that agreement leaves enough room for them to dangle it and market it in front of the planning commissioners and city council. And it's unfortunate they didn't close that loophole because it's wide open for Amazon or any other newly formed entity or any other um, company that will lease space on the property to request and to receive tax abatements, grants, or any other type of incentives later on. And that's less money that will benefit um, the citizens of Detroit. So I fully expect if there are no changes that they will come back and uh, request those type of incentives later because that's what they do. I want to ask about, and then I'll let you, I'm sorry, I'll let you jump in, Amas. I want to, I've read a couple of, uh, a couple of pieces where the language has been um, offered by, by your team. Um, and the authors that the property was deliberately undervalued, and this affected affected mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. the community benefits ordinance kicks in or when it kicks in. I wonder if you could explain that, if you could clarify that, either you or Frank could clarify that a little bit, 
how you came to that that conclusion and just just explain how the how the value pertains to the community benefits ordinance that we have on the books now. So basically our ordinance kicks in, you know, in several ways for a tier one development like this. One is the issue of whether the developer receives tax incentives, you know, from the start. So you would often hear the mayor say, oh, no, 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 they're not receiving any tax incentives. But the other way that the ordinance kicks into action is with the transfer of public mm -hmm. land. And the ordinance states that if public land that's valued at $1 million or more that has a cumulative value is transferred um, without bidding or no bid sale and below market rate, then the community benefits ordinance kicks in. And that's important because land is, you know, it's it's limited. You know, there's a value mm -hmm. to land and our ordinance recognizes that. And so this uh, proposal or this arrangement, we believe is subject to the community benefits ordinance. One, because it's a no bid, it was a no bid transaction. There was not one RFP issue to make sure that we were getting the best price or have, or even the best use for I mean, this extremely large and valuable piece of property. The second piece in terms of the valuation, the city of Detroit commissioned an appraisal report that uh, we say used a fairly conservative method, but even with that, they've arrived at a conclusion that the land was valued at $12 million. The purchase agreement basically splits the transaction. It says that you'll receive nine, the city of Detroit is receiving $9 million for the land sale and $7 million to construct the new transit mm -hmm. center. And so the Duggan administration has said, oh no, no, we're getting $16 million. So it's more than 12 and therefore the community benefits ordinance doesn't apply. And what we're saying, and what we're also saying in our lawsuit, is no, you're um, conflating those things. $7 million for a transit center, that's a municipal function. That's a contribution towards a municipal mm -hmm. function, an ongoing expense and operation. It is not a transfer of land. And the ordinance speaks to the transfer of land. So we are saying it's improper for the Duggan administration to take uh, a contribution, not the total cost, but a contribution to build a transit center that they recognize will largely benefit Amazon and its operations for being able to essentially have curbside service for people to come to its workplace, you know, and that gets into a lot of issues that are live right now with um, the location of this transit center because the city of Detroit has to relocate the current transit center and build a whole new one in this agreement. Mm -hmm. So we're saying no. Uh -huh. Those are two separate things. That is not a transfer of land for purposes of complying with this ordinance. And you squishing them together, you know, is a workaround, essentially, of the community. Mm -hmm. So that is um, our contention there. Not to mention, it also calls for, on one hand, for it to be an as-is sale, and they're also taking... Um, deductions for remediate, environmental remediation. They're saying, oh, we have to take a little bit off the demolition. 
and they're they're doing other things to get that appraisal value even lower. But even regardless of the deductions that they're taking off of the appraisal, the combining of those transactions, we believe, is not um, in the spirit or the plain language of the community benefits ordinance, and it's nothing more than a workaround because um, Amazon does not want community members poking uh, around, asking what they're doing, asking to uh, monitor what yeah. they're doing. You know, they want this done. Community out. Amas, you want to jump in? I can, I, I can keep going. I've got, I've got so many questions. I was going to ask about that uh, deliberate change in that, um, and that. Um, so you kind of took my question, but I'm, I'm curious, what, where are we at in, in the lawsuit? I know that the temporary restraining order was filed, and then very recently there was a Michigan Court of Appeals reversal. So what are the next steps, Tanya, that you, that, that the coalition and that Sugar Law Center are doing? to you know combat this this kind of fast track of the sale mm -hmm. well um, we keep going um, certainly you know we believe that uh, the circuit court judge made the right call and issuing the temporary restraining order they don't just pass those around <laughs> you know so we believe we satisfied the criteria under the court rules which is to show that we have a likelihood of success on the merits doesn't mean that at that point, you prove your whole case, but that is possible that you have a case that the balance of harm um, harms the community more for this to go forward than it would harm the city of Detroit to essentially pause and work these issues out, that there is a risk of irreparable harm. And we argue that the environmental and health impacts that are not you know, accounted for in the agreement do constitute irreparable harm. Once someone has, um, you know, inhaled those diesel emissions and pollutants, that they they have to deal with that. You know, you can't take it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, mm -hmm. you know, you you're having to um, incur the the expense and the pain and additional medical care. Um, so we argued irreparable harm, and then there's the public interest factor. This is public land. You know, thousands of people are affected, so there is a substantial public interest. So we believe we were correct in satisfying that criteria. Um, obviously, the city wanted this to go forward and went to the Michigan Court of Appeals. Um, at that point, the Court of Appeals um, ex exercised its um, ability to intervene. You know, at this point in the case, you typically but you don't have a right to be heard in the Court of Appeals. It's discretionary. So the Court of Appeals chose to take it up. They didn't have to, but they did. And they said, um, you know, you know, did an analysis of their own. And I believe a large part of what um, was at play here is in the city of Detroit's pleadings. You know, they submitted an affidavit. They submitted in their pleadings. They said, oh, the whole deal is at risk. You know, Amazon has said if this deal doesn't, you know, close on November 4th, they will walk away. The city will lose billions. We won't get another deal like this in 30 years. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, they laid it on pretty thick there. Um, so the Court of Appeals overturned the restraining order. They did not dismiss the case. 
So we are continuing to go forward. Obviously, we would prefer um, for the restraining order to have been in place or at least allow the circuit court judge to make that determination. Our hearing on that particular matter was scheduled for five days later, on five days. The judge was um, on vacation. It was five days later. The city here in Amazon asserted they could not wait five more days for the uh, normal course of action to happen. So uh, that was reversed. But we are proceeding forward. Our claim now is for what they call declaratory relief for ruling on a correct interpretation of the community benefits ordinance and also the community outreach ordinance. And in terms of the why, why this is so important, when you ask what's wrong with this deal, the community benefits ordinance allows individuals, neighborhood people to form an advisory committee where they can go directly to the developer and say, we want these things to protect our health, our safety, to provide for recreation, whatever the things may be, it gives the community a legal voice. And those terms have to be incorporated into the development agreement. And that committee has- I was gonna, I was just gonna ask, you're saying once the community benefits oh, and then, ordinance kicks in, um, all these other opportunities come about, you know, for the community to actually- That's right. And the city of Detroit guarded that relationship heavily. The developer did come to some meetings. Um, he showed his face. You know, I would say that's about it. <laughs> but the city representatives certainly guarded access, guarded the messaging, blocked accountability. Um, and Amazon is nowhere to be seen. Your name isn't anywhere for anything. We promise nothing, we're accountable for nothing. So um, the community benefits ordinance is one way to have accountability where neighborhood residents can monitor the agreements that were reached and actually city council can um, enforce those agreements if there was a breach of the agreement. And we see, we've seen time and time again, developers don't keep their promises when it comes to the city of Detroit. So that neighborhood um, inclusion, voice, monitoring, enforcement is so important to have from the out. So that's one, and with the community outreach ordinance, that's fairly new. That was just passed in September, but again, it was passed as a result of citizens raising their voice and saying we're tired of these agreements just popping up overnight without anybody knowing what happens. You know, what, what are the terms? What are the impacts? And that ordinance has a requirement for you know, a minimum number of meetings to happen and for there to be full disclosure of the impact of these projects for citizen concerns, all of them to be addressed, you know, and that's important when you're dealing with a company like Amazon. Um, uh -huh. The information we received was uh, largely one-sided PowerPoint presentation saying this is great, everything's great, everyone have a job, it's great. You know, no discussion of, of negative impacts um, from mm. this project. So we believe those disclosures are important too. And that's what we're seeking right now through the court, which is kind of tragic. We shouldn't have to go to court to get that basic information, but that's where we find ourselves right now. So we continue on. That's one way we continue on. 
Um, we're also working in solidarity with our colleagues, transit justice colleagues, because there are still live issues concerning the relocation of the transit center and the impacts of that. And then we were working with our allies on historic preservation. You know, through our advocacy, we did win a commitment for the city to at least take a three-month period to study preservation, but that is a long way from a commitment, right? <laughs> to preserve the historical building. So we still have a lot yeah, of work. You guys to are do. laying the foundation. We just we just need the people. We need the people. Uh, a few more bodies to step up and um, you know join the crowd. We're speaking with Frank and Karen Hammer from the State Fairgrounds Development Coalition and and attorney Tanya Myers Phillips from the Sugar Law Center. Frank and Karen, are you, are you still there? Yeah, and uh, yeah, unfortunately we have another commitment, so we will be leaving our, this podcast okay. uh, shortly. Can I just, um, before you go, I, I just wanted to get one more question and, and, and get your voice on before you guys go real quick. I just wanted to hear about, you know, we were talking about the community uh, benefits ordinance I guess my question is, as you continue to organize uh, in the area, in the areas around um, the state fairgrounds, on what level is um, are the community benefits, is the community benefits ordinance part of the conversation and are people aware of, I don't want to say powers, but I mean, what, what capacity that that brings to folks? Is that part of the discussion? So certainly, uh, certainly in terms of bringing the case back to Third Circuit Court, we're certainly going to be educating uh, a lot of people about the meaning of the CBO. And, and, I, and I caution to add that, you know, the, the whole community benefit ordinance was a product of mm-hmm. grassroots work, of community uh, outpouring. Uh, and if you recall, back to about four years ago, uh, there was this wonderful campaign that was going to uh, that came up on the ballot as Prop A for a community benefit ordinance. And at the last minute, the powers that be, the elites of the city, through uh, a council representative, for example, uh, Scott Benson, uh, implemented, put on the ballot a Prop B, and then initiated a massive campaign on the airwaves, on the TV, constant ads about if Detroit uh, selects Prop A. We will never have another developer come to the city. And it really uh, scared Detroiters. Uh, and therefore, we accepted, uh, as voting public, we accepted Prop B. And even as weak as the language is in Prop B, not reflecting what the community really wanted, even so, the city has attempted to skirt and go around that ordinance to completely deny any leverage for community input and reaching a community benefit agreement. It was a real power play, ignoring the, even the weekend community benefit ordinance yeah. that's on the books. Mm. And with that, I will thank you so much. I do have another commitment, but I'm really grateful for this. And it's a great follow-up to our earlier conversations that uh, people can read about in Riverwise. Thank you so very, very much and happy to meet Enjoy you. Enjoy your time. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Karen. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So I want to ask about opportunities for folks. You know, I know that the case is still going through the courts. I mean, it's, 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 we, we expect to see it at the next level. I mean, will we, will we be seeing it at the state, at the state level or the, not the state level, but the, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court? I mean, is there an opportunity to, to have it heard there? 
Well, there's not, I think that would be further down, down the road, you know, um, we're kind of back at back the circuit the court. Yeah. You know, that could be the case oh. later down the road. And um, we'll certainly keep you posted, but we're going through the process right now, going through the system. So we'll keep you posted on that. But we are, we're committed to the long-term fight. And we believe that this is important, not just for this site, but to set a precedent for how developments are handled um, throughout the city of Detroit, how this ordinance is interpreted. You know, we feel like we, we have to draw a line in the sand here that, you know, developments that have the potential um, or that will, it's not a question of if, but when, you know, you're bringing these um, industrial type um, developments mm -hmm. into our city. Uh, community members need to have a say in what happens. You know, we need to, um, you know, have say and provision. You know, for our our health and protection and well-being. So, State Fairgrounds is the largest development of that type, but it seems to be an emerging trend, kind of around the outer rings of the city, where you see these um, industrial uh, permits. Um, and proposals popping up, you know, you know, more quickly now than I've seen them before, which is um, disturbing. <laughs> As a city resident, you have a, uh -huh. a very um, kind of pristine downtown, Lower East Side, Midtown kind of area, but you're seeing an increase in factories and industrial developments around the rings of the city. And it's uh, something that we have to draw yeah. a line on and, and hold our elected officials accountable. You know, this isn't just, you know, we need to get land off the books, do something with yeah. it, anything with it. You know, yeah. these are our lives at stake here. You know? Yeah, even though, even though you know, we're all, we're all tied up and adapting to other things um, in these challenging times, you know, Amas mentioned earlier that, you know, you wonder sometimes if the timing is such that, you know, you know, deals like this are being pushed through because, you know, I don't know if it's fair to say that, you know, folks aren't necessarily as, as active, you know, the circles that, that, that we're in, certainly people are, but I'm wondering, you know, you guys did a community-led town hall in September. I don't mm -hmm. know the date. Can we expect anything like that as far as some sort of town hall discussion on where this agreement might go next or how, how it might be further resisted? Yes, yes. So we don't have, you know, a date to share with you right now, but certainly you can expect that. And the weeks to come, you know, we're um, certainly in the middle of this court piece. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, transit advocacy, you know, with our allies. I mentioned the historical uh, piece also. And, you know, it's getting to that that time of year, certainly, where people are thinking um, thinking about other things. The city council is going on recess November mm -hmm. 24th. But certainly um, in, the, in the coming weeks and in the new year, you can expect to uh, hear more about what's next. And internally, we think of this as a phase. This is it's entering to another phase. Um, even though the council approved this deal, there's still um, regulatory opportunities that they could use to make things right. Um, there's certainly different tactics or levels of engagement you know, that can be used, that we can come together around as a community um, to make sure that 
we're safe and that we're protected and community interest come first. So all of that to say is yes, yes, there would be another town hall. There would be um, information on where we've been, where we're going and requests for others to, to stand in solidarity with us. Well, that's good to hear. When we thank you for all the work you've been doing and um... You know, we hope there's more opportunities to, you know, collaborate with Riverwise and share that information through the podcast and through the print issue as well. We've got a couple of new things coming out in 2021, so we hope you, you know, this, this fight, this critical look at what's going on in the state fairgrounds is um, is part of our coverage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. Thanks for all that information and and us and sharing your time with us this evening. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And we have two two years before this, um, you know, this proposal as it's written today is supposed to launch. So we have we have time to continue our work. <laughs> Thank you so much, Attorney Thank Tanya so Myers Phillips from the Sugar Law Center. Thanks for joining us at Riverwise. And we hope I should mention too. I know I know Amas has been great at doing this and asking our guests and making sure that you you know you're you're finding time for yourself in these challenging times to. Um, for self-care. We hope you're uh, finding some time to relax at some point. Thanks for joining yes. us. You yeah, to talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. This is Eric from Riverwise Magazine. As we navigate these challenging times of collective mourning and protest and transformation, we're grateful to be part of a vital network of community-based media your continued support is vital. So we just want to take a minute and recognize the people keeping the Riverwise podcast afloat. Those people include the Riverwise Collective, the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center, Kari Frazier, and the Detroit is Different Network. We thank them for their technical and creative support. We thank Heidi Osgood, L'Oreal West, Valerie Jean for their help in getting the podcast out to the public. We want to thank Reverend Joan Ross for her continued encouragement and inspiration at WNUC. Bryce Detroit, thank you for letting us use your track out here now from the album Structured Water. You should all look for it. And we want to thank the Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund, which is facilitated through the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, who have supported Riverwise and this podcast and the writing workshop since 2018. Most importantly, we want to thank you, all the, the listeners, the readers, the people who are building community, building relationships out in the city of Detroit. We thank you for your support through the magazine, through the podcast, and we look forward to bringing more valuable content to you in 2020 and beyond. Peace.